0: We've been watching this for for three years or so, move from the kind of bottom of the internet, as it were, on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard, being used by our politicians.
1: I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter.
2: Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on
1: them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways
3: of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty really stupid policy
4: to take the red pill it offers a system that puts sense on things it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling
5: so maybe facts don't care about your feelings but for q it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics,
1: a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture, and with particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode seven, Who is to Blame?
5: And who are we?
0: I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia in Norwich.
5: I'm Rob Topinka. I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher. I research
1: digital culture at the University of East Anglia.
4: And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we talking about in this episode?
5: So in this episode, we're talking about conspiracy theories, or as one of our guests today, Wu ming would call them, conspiracy fantasies. And it does feel like conspiracies are suddenly everywhere. And the weirder the conspiracy, the broader its reach. So this episode, we're going to ask why. We're thinking about how they work, and especially how they give people someone to blame for whatever they think has gone wrong in the
0: world. And we are, having deferred it from episode one, finally going to talk about QAnon. It didn't exist when we started our research, but now is quite dominant in a lot of the places that we've been looking at. And while conspiracy theories are perhaps distinct from political ideologies and the sorts of organised movements we've been talking about, it's also the case that political thinking has become a lot more conspiratorial. Here's the actor who played Jesus in The Passion of Christ talking about something called adrenochrome.
5: You said adrenochrome. Essentially, you have adrenaline in your body. I'll just simplify it. And, and when you are scared, you produce adrenaline. If a child knows he's going to die, uh, his body will uh, secrete this uh, adrenaline. Followers of
6: QAnon are obsessed with the idea, without having any evidence, that Hollywood celebrities and other famous people torture children to extract adrenochrome, some believe
1: to use in satanic rituals. Before we get to the satanic rituals, though, uh, we need to think a bit about why there are so many conspiracy theories around today.
0: So to make sense of this, we have to start by recognising, I think, that conspiracy theory and conspiracy thinking is very deeply embedded within the ways we normally think about politics. The American politics scholars Russ Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum make the point that America, for instance, is founded on a claim about conspiracy, about King George plotting against the people in the 13 colonies. And we might think of the way a lot of anti-capitalist politics suggests that capitalists are rigging the system against the rest of us. These aren't necessarily wrong claims, it's always more complicated, but democratic politics is in part born of opposition to small groups running everything. There's a bit of democratic politics which is inherently suspicious of power of all kinds, of how it might subvert democracy, and which wants to make everything transparent, put things into the spotlight, expose all the shady dealings. Today, though, conspiracy theories are about all kinds of things. Moon landings and the flat earth. COVID, 9-11, the deep state, and in the world we've been studying, conspiracy theories about the great replacement to displace white people from Europe, and cultural Marxists who are said to have infiltrated the government and be secretly plotting against all of us. So I think it's worth distinguishing between some things. On the one hand, there are claims that are about some specific issue construed as a conspiracy, the idea that people are hiding something in order to get a bill passed, to promote a policy, or to get votes. When someone says that George Bush and Tony Blair were part of a conspiracy to invade Iraq, I think that term is sort of a critical evaluation of the policy it implies a kind of democratic objection to just a few deciding on a policy without regards to the interests or outlooks of everybody else. That's different from arguments where conspiracy is a theory with a capital T, a sort of meta explanation of everything, and where the specific conspiracy someone's talking about is just an example. That is, you start from the premise that there definitely are dark cabals running everything and behind everything. So you just have to work out how 9-11 connects to the war in Iraq, which connects to the New World Order, which connects to the end of the Cold War, which was itself invented by the elites and so on, until the moon landings and flat Earth and immigration policy are all part of one big endless conspiracy.
5: Right. So people do, in fact, make secret agreements to break the rules, exploit people and just sort of generally do bad things. But people also invent grand totalizing explanations for everything that is wrong in the world. We spoke to Wu Ming-Wan of the Wu Ming Collective about this.
0: Okay, okay. Who is he and what is that?
5: The Wu Ming Collective is an Italian collective of writers and artists, and they have staged some political actions in Italy too. But instead of using their own names, they use the Chinese word Wu Ming and a number. Uh, and Wu Ming means anonymous, so we spoke with Wu ming One.
0: Okay, but why? Why did we talk to Wu ming One?
5: Well, Wu ming One has a place in this story. So before their name was Wu Ming, they used the name Luther Blissett when they wrote a novel called Q about heretics and revolts and conspiracies in Renaissance Europe. So we'll come back to that. And Wu ming has written a book about conspiracy theories. But the point of this is Wu ming told us we need to distinguish between actual conspiracies and imagined ones, conspiracy facts and conspiracy fantasies.
7: There are conspiracies uh, taking place all the time. Uh, so what's the difference between real conspiracies and imagined, fantasized conspiracies such as QAnon or the uh, Judeo-Masonic conspiracy or the Great Replacement uh, and and stuff like that. Uh, I started from from there. In order to draw a clear distinction between real conspiracies and uh, this kind of uh, universal conspiracies that are described as uh, perfect and all-encompassing and mm, uh, hyper-consistently planned and uh, put to to practice, I needed uh, different concepts, because uh, conspiracy theory conflates two different things into one phrase. And, And there's also a problem when it comes to translating it In languages different than English, because in that phrase in English conspiracy has a slightly or not so slightly derogatory meaning, or at least dismissive. It means conjecture, it means bad hypothesis, it means unfounded hypothesis. When you say that someone is a conspiracy theorist, usually it means that he's a liar, he or she is a liar usually he, <laughs> usually he, most of them are men, actually. And, uh, and this is a problem.
5: So it's important to remember both that conspiracies do, in fact, happen, and that the term conspiracy theory can be a way of trying to undermine anyone questioning powerful people. So this is why Wu ming One prefers to talk about conspiracy fantasies. Conspiracy fantasies
7: are that kind of phantasmagoric hallucination of a hyper-coherent, a hyper-consistent, perfect, uh, mega-conspiracy to rule the world, to rule the whole reality around us.
5: The word fantasy is really useful here because it's a reminder that conspiracy theory is a response to a very confusing world, a world where a lot of politics is not very transparent and is often corrupt. So there is a reality to the fantasy. Wu Ming, one calls it the kernel of truth in a conspiracy fantasy. The fantasy responds to a real problem. It gives us a place in the world. It makes us one of the people who can pierce the veil, who are in on the secret, and who are ready and willing to fight for what's right. That's not to say conspiracy theories or fantasies
1: are harmless. Matthew Feldman, director of the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, told us that, in fact, conspiratorial thinking might be a defining feature of fascism.
2: So we talk about these elements that are kind of at the core of fascism, that if you take them away, it's something else. So, for example, you know, kind of a forward looking revolution oftentimes is seen as is separating fascists as it is from kind of conservatives and, and others. And it's it's starting to occur to me that one of those elements may well be conspiracy theory, which is to say, can you be somebody who's fascist or radical right and not engage in conspiracy theories? I certainly think you can to be a liberal or a Marxist or even a Stalinist. You could point to iron rules of history. I'm not so convinced that you can be a fascist, certainly a fascist ideologue, without seeing the conspiratorial hand of you know, a small cabal, oftentimes, you know, rendered as Jews, uh, out to destroy them. So I'm, I'm really getting close to thinking that it is a defining feature of fascism and the radical right.
1: So the fantasy responds to a real problem, but it often does so by identifying a secret cabal, often, as Matthew Faldeman said, a cabal conceived of as Jewish. So it's not surprising that George Soros, for example, is a key enemy in the QAnon fantasy. Uh, This is an example of what Matthew was telling us earlier in the series when he talked about uh, metonymy. Here, a figure like Soros comes to stand in for this sinister cabal uh, and provides an acceptable way of kind of laundering anti-Semitic ideas about who runs the world.
0: So I think it's important to reflect on how this kind of conspiracy theory sort of does work for a larger political kind of theory or ideology, because what it's really doing fundamentally is assigning blame. It's pointing out a bunch of things, real or imagined, felt or experienced, and giving them a reason. It's like a theology that's trying to explain suffering, why bad things happen to good people, why the world isn't as right and great as it should be. And it's saying that that's not just an accident, but it's the action of a hidden hand of evil forces. And the conspiracy theory gives people a way of distinguishing between friend and enemy. In a lot of the online conspiracy material that... That is what it's all about, how to spot the symbols of the Illuminati, how to see in the eyes that someone is possessed, or how to recognise the key terms in their agenda, how to recognise the gestures and phrases of your allies so you know who's on your side and who's not. That's part of the appeal of the red pill. It gives you a special way of seeing, gives you knowledge and insight that others don't have so that you can feel armed against evil, which brings us to QAnon. (laughs) QAnon.
5: So the core belief of QAnon is that a cabal of satanic pedophiles runs a global sex trafficking ring. And Donald Trump was going to, and maybe still might, expose, arrest, and punish them all, which is why they all conspired against him. So the cabal is composed mostly of Democrats, celebrities of all kinds, and as we've been saying, George Soros. So it's also highly anti-Semitic. So where did all this come from? Well, on the one hand, it came from the history of conspiracy fantasies, as Wu one would call them. But it gives them a new twist. In this case, we can sort of say exactly where it came from. It started on 4chan.
0: Which is?
5: 4chan is an unmoderated image board founded in 2003 that's developed its very own, its own very intense and for outsiders very obscure subculture. Lots of things on the internet that would later become well-known memes or phrases in fact started on 4chan like lolcats and rickrolling. But it also has some political threads and was heavily involved with Gamergate, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But anyway, a poster calling themselves the Q Clearance Patriot began posting cryptic, semi-prophetic messages on 4chan. And the idea developed that this was an insider from the Trump administration who was letting true patriots know in coded form what was really going on, the truth of the cabal and the plans for arresting them. Typical Q posts are basically a series of questions. For example, one from October of 2017 included things like, why does POTUS surround himself with generals? What is military intelligence? Why go around the three-letter agencies? What Supreme Court case allows for the use of MI versus Congressional, Assembled, and Approved agencies? QAnon followers call these drops crumbs. And they organized across various platforms to do their own research and bake the crumbs into bread. So the followers, or bakers, as they call themselves, are really more important than the Q-drops or the posts from Q-clearance patriots themselves. There haven't been any Q-drops since January 2021, but in a way that doesn't really matter. And it's better not to get hung up on the so-called beliefs of QAnon followers, not just because they're so bonkers, but also because the point of Q isn't developing a coherent worldview. It's an extreme example of how digital culture can orient us politically. that way, Q Q combines a lot of the themes we've been discussing in this podcast series so far. It works because digital media both networks and decontextualizes, because it makes DIY everything, including worldviews, really easy, because it's addictive and fun, because it allows us to create subcultures that are unintelligible to outsiders and make you feel like you're in on some kind of secret. So Q has enabled people to get together and develop and mutually test all kinds of theories. It gives people something fun to do, trawling and tracking things across the internet to decode the hidden meaning of the world. So QAnon now has many of the features that conspiracy theories have always had. A belief in a secret elite manipulating the masses, an obsession with hidden symbols, signs and hand gestures that the elite are supposedly using to communicate among themselves, often conveniently at press conferences and photo ops. Uh, The basic idea that what seems like reality is always a hoax, a manipulation or a false flag.
0: So conspiracy theories often try to interpret events like the JFK assassination or the 9-11 attacks. But as Wu Ming told us, to get back to him, it seems like QAnon started as a prank.
7: Well, in the spring of 2018, my old pal Florian Kramer, which you had a conversation with not long ago, uh, sent me an email saying... um, it uh, looks uh, like someone took uh, the old Luther Brissett playbook in order to construct uh, a conspiracy theory for the alt-right. It's <laughs> just like that. And there was a link to a, an article which uh, just appeared on Vice, one of the first um, uh, detailed resume of, uh, of QAnon as a phenomenon. QAnon had started a few months before, Uh, in the autumn of uh, 2017, and it was gaining momentum, you know, it was becoming big, it was increasing its influence, uh, because it has just uh, started from niche phenomenon, Fortune 8, to a more important, a more relevant phenomenon, which you could bump into on uh, mainstream social media, such as Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Etc. I, I read the article and then looked for some more material and understood that the template from the narrative premise of QAnon was taken from our novel Q. At least that was the you know the appearance of that. It was it was uh, apparent because there was a guy, an anonymous guy, posing. As a government insider, or at least as someone uh, who was aware of state secrets at the top level of the US government, uh sending dispatches to an alleged community of you know of patriots, of revolutionaries in a way, which was the Fortune and then the Achan community, uh using Q, the letter Q as a signature, and warning that a final Field battle between good and evil was upcoming, was imminent, and that's the you know the beginning of our novel. queue. in our novel, there is a guy, an anonymous guy, posing as someone who's aware of uh, very important confidential information about how the princes and bishop of seventeenth uh, century Germany. Are, want to uh, repress, want to destroy a peasant insurrection, uh, the so called Peasant War, in 1524, 1525 in Germany. Uh, this guy sends dispatches to the community of insurgents using the letter Q as Kohelet, the book of the Bible, as a signature, suggesting that the forces of evil must be met. In uh, must be confronted in a final field battle in a place called Frankenhausen in Thuringia, a region of Germany. Uh, in doing that, this guy is uh, spreading false information, uh, and the revolutionaries, the peasant, uh, the peasant insurgents, uh, and uh, and uh, are destroyed. They fall in a trap. They fall into a trap because of that false info. Okay, so when I when I heard about Kenon, when I read about Kenon, when we as women collective read about Kenon, felt engaged in a way because we started to wonder, is this guy explicitly quoting, citing from our book, making references, making tongue-in-cheek references to our book? By this guy, I mean the initiator, the first uh, the prime mover, the, the beginner, the, the first guy who wrote uh, Q drops on Fortune in October and November 2017. The author of the Q drops, the the first author of Q drops, uh, uh, is probably most likely a different person from the guy who kept writing them after December 2017. There are even textual analysis of, uh, of uh, the Q-drops uh, suggesting that there was a change in style, there was a change of end, and probably, most likely, the second guy was Ron Watkins of ApeCon. Anyway, this is not important right now. Okay, We also we also felt that the QAnon community was dealing with issues we had dealt ourselves back in the 90s conspiracy fantasies centred around satanic ritual abuse.
0: So this really is quite a weird story, right? We've got some kind of Italian art political collective writing a novel, uh, imagining some conspiratorial heretic figure from the 16th century that gets picked up perhaps as a prank by somebody playing around on 4chan pretending to be some dark conspiracy figure from the 2020s. And then, the internet sort of makes this become kind of a real thing, or it's the thing that people believe in and the thing that people are following. You could fall down a whole conspiracy rabbit hole of your own trying to work out who's really behind this and what they were doing. I think the point is just to understand the weirdness of how certain kind of artistic, aesthetic activities can get folded in, taken out of context, reworked and repurposed and become something else.
1: Right, and arguably it's not that important to determine who started this, what their intentions were, what they might have been cribbing from where. Florian Kramer, who Wuming Ming-Wan mentioned there, is an artist, writer and researcher based at the Willem de Kooning Academy in Rotterdam. Uh, and he spoke to us about this. For him, QAnon is less about the Q-drops than it is how people have responded to them. Or, as we've said in Q parlance, how the researchers take Q's breadcrumbs and become bakers who play an active role in arranging them into a new emerging worldview.
8: The most important thing to... to um State in the beginning is uh, first of all, Qanon was shit posti- posting on 4chan. Yeah, um, it was nothing more than that. Um, it was literally what you call in 4chan lingo, copy So it was like a, a copy paste shit posting know, um, probably not meant serious in any way of somebody claiming to be this um, secret agent Q having uh, uh, insight into uh, secret government proceedings and Donald Trump basically saving the world. I mean, mainly this was even or perhaps this was maybe even a, a completely uh, ludicrous joke. Uh, but you found people who actually were believing it. I mean, it's, it's almost, I would say, uh, like The Life of Brian by Monty Python, right? Um, where you have a kind of own theory on the origin of, of, of religions you know where, where this person Brian um, suddenly becomes yeah, the equivalent of, of Jesus Christ and and the, the founder of a new religion without ever having intended that you know and, and then uh, the crowd standing in front of his mother and asking her whether she is a virgin, etc. I think this is more or less what happened with Q So maybe you could describe it as a kind of religious, Grace, indeed. And maybe, yeah, uh, there there is no good explanation um, for the fact that, I mean, that a new religion could, of all means, originate on 4chan is perhaps the most Ridiculous joke, <laughs> the worst joke of the twenty first century, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe we have to explain what 4chan is. I mean, it's, it's basically a, a nonsense forum. Yeah, it, it it is as if you know, out of Dadaism uh, and punk and uh, pop rock, uh, somebody would distill uh, the new Evangelion or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that that's what happened. Um, and um, and it's also quite clear and that this has been researched that, let's say, the, the so-called Q drops, the QAnon postings that then followed, were not written by the same people, uh, uh, person, that there were different people um, posing as QAnon and making these drops. And at some point it, it turned into a business model. Yeah? The more followers there were, uh, the more it became a cult, the more uh, influencers you had. It's also, yeah, I think this is also what we see right now, that there's also a convergence not only of visual culture and politics, but also of Internet influencer, social media influencer culture. And, there is a market to position yourself as such an influencer yeah. so i think we live in a, in a time where the boundaries between a political leader and and, and a social media influencer are completely blurred and maybe the so-called alt right and now QAnon is is one of the first movements who realized that. So that would be internet age metapolitics. But that's not, still not a good explanation for QAnon. I think nobody has a sane explanation. I I, I think uh, yeah, you probably need uh, to have a certain milieu um, that is already thinking in apocalyptic uh, religious thought patterns and is receptable for such an uh, ideology. And then it's basically a kind of hodgepodge. Yeah, it's, it's a mashup um, of all kinds of elements. It's, it's uh, QAnon is a hodgepodge of literally evangelical religion. So for example, the Great Awakening is a, is a, a evangelical trope that was already used in the USA in, in the 18th century and in the 19th century. Um, so it's literally repeating that and then um, bringing in all conspiracy, fantasies, mythologies that existed in the past, you know, um, uh, including antisemitic uh, conspiracy uh, theories. Um, and, and making one new thing out of that, then selling it, let's say, to the same kind of milieus, to the same kind of people who always have been receptive for, for, for these uh, conspiracy mythologies, such as anti-vaxxers. And uh, in, in uh, Europe, you could particularly see that the same evangelical milieu doesn't really exist in the same way in, in, in Europe, but what exists and what works very similar is the kind of esoteric uh, milieu, um, uh, the new age milieu. And, and uh, in the case of Europe, it was the New Age milieu, particularly in, in, in Germany and in neighboring countries, that kind of greedily sucked up uh, QAnon uh, and, and mixed it with the Corona uh, protests. So it's, yeah. So maybe we don't even need to call it um, metapolitics, politics or we, we don't need to call it inter- influencer politics, but maybe it's really a classical example of political theology.
5: Clearly QAnon has this element of political theology. So the question then is, what makes it different from, say, the life of Brian? I think it's that QAnon believers are active participants in shaping the story. So we talked to Florian about this, and he told us how he and Wooming One began to think of QAnon as a kind of LARP, like a live-action role-playing game.
8: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it's this live-action role-playing uh, game. Um, so... He came up with a parallel to live-action role-playing games, which basically mean uh, that you have something like a collective puzzle that that you're working on. And um, these games have existed before the internet, but uh, of course can be played in in a much more efficient way um, through internet devices, through internet networking. And the engaging part of um, QAnon is not, let's say you go to the church and somebody is preaching to you and you're sucking it in and then you live after it, but actually you're just being being fed with crumbs, right, with information fragments, then it is upon you to research this uh, these fragments. And actually, it's something very similar to what uh, a novel by Umberto Eco published in the 1980s, Foucault's Pendulum is also describing, where a group of people actually, in in a more playful way, gets into conspiracy myths and and basically does a research on on the whole kind of European history of of, uh, conspiracy myths, but then actually ends up being entangled in them as well, and actually becoming victim of a a real conspiracy. So that always, you could say, in any form of, maybe call it paranoia, uh, or any form of constructing conspiracies, it's always about connecting the dots. It's, it's like radical connectionism. You create links between different phenomena and different meanings, even where these links might be completely fictitious, but then you end up with a kind of closed universe or a coherent model with which you can explain almost everything. That's nothing new. Uh, it's only that QAnon has done this kind of hegemonic attempt to basically become the super conspiracy myth, to incorporate everything that has ever been done in this respect and and this way becoming almost a kind of alternative model of explaining the world uh, and i think that's that's the attraction it's, it's like an um you no know, it explains you the world if you no longer understand it and and even it makes you part of the explanation in the sense that you, you're not just being fed the explanation, but you are being asked to collaborate in in, in creating this this, uh, explanation by googling certain search terms. Now that's that's the the gamification part of that.
0: Okay, so I think I'm beginning to understand this. It isn't so important to think about where it all came from, who's behind all this, in a way that is getting sucked into the conspiracy fantasy, isn't it? It's about how the community of users can make use of this, how they can collectively interpret it.
7: So there was always a fascination with conspiracies in subcultures, and that's what QAnon and those kind of phenomena are recuperating now. That's what they're turning upside down, or inside out, as it's it, it like, now. And that's what happened with QAnon, in a way, uh, mimicking the Luther Brissett project. Probably not intentionally, I think that the first guy who wrote, the first anonymous guy who wrote the Q drops, was making Clear references to our novel Q, but the whole concretion, the whole uh, construction of uh, of the mega conspiracy, which we now call QAnon, was uh, made mainly by the community using the Q drops, interpreting the Q drops, you know. And those people, most of those people, are completely unaware of our novel. Okay, so it was the starting point, initial spark, but not uh, a constant. Uh, example or a constant reference certainly the fact that uh, uh, satanic ritual abuse re-emerged thanks uh, re-emerged in culture resurfaced in culture thanks to QAnon, and q anon started with some cryptic probably playful dispatches making reference to our novel and we had uh, you know, investigated satanic ritual abuse many years ago is a this is a set of coincidences. It's incredible. <laughs> it's unbelievable.
5: So in a way, Q anon is picking up on very old themes that we find in lots of other conspiracy theories. But what's really interesting about it is is the community. And to understand this, we need to get back to the technology. Q couldn't exist as it does without digital media. It's what's bringing people together. It's the space where they roam across to find and spread information. It gives the phenomenon a way to become a subculture and an aesthetic and an identity. And it provides opportunities for political operators to make use of it, to encourage it, to exploit it. So this communal interpretation game is also in part a function of what Hugo Leal, who researches digital culture and the internet from Cambridge, calls network disinformation life cycles.
6: And the context of the intentional dissemination of a viral mm-hmm. narrative. So it, it intends to describe the life cycle of a viral narrative from birth to growth, death, or actually more frequently adaptation and, and evolution be, because one of the characteristics of conspiracy theories is that they never ever die. So, and, and, and it tries to do this through social network dynamics, uh, including the affordances of, of the medium uh, itself and the way different actors use uh, the medium to uh, promote their ideas or products. So, this is where I make a very, very important differentiation between the structural properties of social media platforms and their inherent tendency to promote uh, virality on one side, and the different positions and roles played by a multiplicity of actors when when trying to disseminate a a potential viral narrative. And it's here that I identify uh, conspiracy uh, conspiracy centrals, those who sit at the center of the network crafting the narrative, who tend to be, by the way, very well-connected nodes, conspiracy brokers who who make bridges uh, across clusters, different parts of the network, for example, and then conspiracy amplifiers or replicators that make the conspiracy grow in size, but not necessarily in reach. And this is where I always like to issue an alert for uh, us and for other colleagues looking at the dissemination of narratives online to stop obsessing uh, about bots for example because when you when you uh, deconstruct the network and 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 go to its fundamental elements you will easily see that we should be concentrating on those sitting at the center of the of the network crafting the narrative and then the brokers rather than just uh, those who are replicating and amplifying the narrative because this could be eliminated and the narrative would still spread the important thing here are the ones crafting the narrative the ones uh, and, and then the ones uh, working uh, as brokers that is linking uh, different parts uh, uh, of the network different uh, clusters thus Assuring that the narrative and the network survive beyond beyond the, the disappearance of some of some of these nodes. So, if you were to remove, uh, I would say seventy to eighty percent of the network and ninety nine percent of the bots, the network wouldn't the, the the bare bones of the network, the structure of the network wouldn't change significantly. Uh, these bots are not the ones driving the evolution of the narrative or Russian agents or click farms, uh, but very easily uh, identifiable local national uh, actors uh, that are promoting these these narratives with political and or economic purposes.
0: So I have kind of a boring, straightforward political sociology kind of question here. Who, who, who is it who's doing all this? I have a kind of image in my mind of the archetypal, extremely online, reactionary, uh, probably adolescent male or man stuck in their adolescence, but maybe that's a wrong image. And in any case, it seems to me that QAnon is not confined to those kind of 4chan users. It's spread way, way beyond that.
1: Right, and this is really interesting. There is a tendency to imagine that all internet radicals are men. And as you say, the, the tone of spaces like 4chan, for example, is very much that of the perpetual male adolescent. But women have been an incredibly important part of QAnon's development and spread. We talked to Claire Birchall about this. She researches digital culture and politics at King's College London, and she had some really interesting things to say about why QAnon in particular might appeal to women.
3: It definitely appeals to more women than the average deep state conspiracy theory. Now, we don't have actually a lot of hard data on the role of women in conspiracy theories. Like, we have much more data about the role of women in far-right communities. But we know anecdotally that they're less active in lots of online conspiracy theory communities. And I think two notable exceptions to that are the Princess Diana conspiracy theories that I was looking at in the 90s, um, and anti-vax conspiracy theories. And so Q, with its like narrative of child abductions, um, appeals to some kind of formation of womanhood. Um, and we can see that in the way that mothers and women have turned out for Save the Children rallies, like the offline Save the Children rallies last year and this year. And I have a theory about this, that I think that you might wanna read QAnon's concern with bodily autonomy as the resurgence of feminist questions in non-feminist or even anti-feminist spaces. I'm not suggesting that Q is is sort of racked with feminist questioning, but I'm saying that it might speak to women in a certain way, because post-feminism, this kind of ideology that tells us that feminism is no longer needed and that we have all the equality that we want, has sort of left us little political space for really dealing with the questions that are still there about feminism.
5: Annie Kelly, who is a researcher and podcaster who studies online anti-feminism, picked up on on a similar theme and told us that we really need to rethink the role of women in the far right
4: often when we kind of talk about what the appeal of these kind of various different strains of kind of reactionary politics, particularly online, are, we kind of come back to the same sort of answers, which is, but you know, particularly for young people, you know, we talk about um, economic precarity, um, about kind of downward mobility, particularly for kind of like middle-class white graduates and this kind of thing, this kind of vast gulf and maybe like how white middle-class graduates saw where their lives might be and then, you know, where they actually are when they're in their kind of twenties. And, you know, n- none of those factors are exclusive to men. Um, But I often think we kind of have a a slight idea in our head that women couldn't possibly be interested in something like this um, because they're, they're too nice and they're too liberal, you know. And I think so I've been quite interested in sort of puncturing that kind of idea generally, because I think, you know, especially with things like the alt-right, you know, that it's got such a kind of clear gender hierarchy. It makes it a very, very hostile place um, for women who are kind of interested in that sort of, yeah, genre of politics to actually practically kind of want to stay. But that doesn't, you know, necessarily mean the kind of end of the story. It often just means that kind of women create their own sort of spaces within that network, um, which is what I kind of saw happening with Tradwives almost. You know, these kind of women would build YouTube channels and Instagram uh, brands and stuff like this and kind of uh yeah sort of create a kind of female friendly i suppose version of the alt right and i think this is especially true for QAnon which doesn't even actually have as its kind of main motivation this incredible anger towards women um it's not it's, it's not it's kind of recruitment strategy as it were so QAnon actually has like an incredible dispersal of women. And unlike the alt-right, they often kind of make it to leadership positions. So kind of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the US. And I think, yeah, there's just been a QAnon promoter who's just got on the ballot for um, a kind of district seat somewhere in America that I've just seen. And actually, they have an incredible amount of women that seem to be um, organizing things in that network. But I think, you know, this kind of even goes back to things like the KKK, which we, you know, we think of as kind of men in hoods. But actually, there was kind of always women doing like an incredible amount of administrative work and recruitment and kind of socials and stuff like that for the KKK. Um, So I think it kind of does come back to a slight, uh, I suppose, kind of like sexism of sort of low expectations or a kind of like, you know, even when we see that kind of women have like always historically been involved in kind of quite reactionary racist movements, we often just kind of think like, oh, you know, they probably didn't really mean it. They're probably just there because their husbands were into it. Um, and actually, there's kind of just quite a historical trend of this kind of level of involvement.
5: So on the one hand, there's the facts don't care about your feelings sort of bro culture that we find in some extremely online reactionary spaces. But one thing conspiracy theories show is that spirituality is really important to the far right as well. Annie Kelly had more to say about this. And like Claire Burchall, she told us about Save the Children rallies. Uh, and these have nothing to do with the Save the Children charity. They're a slogan adopted by QAnon to refer to this conspiracy that there's a global ring of child sex traffickers. So Annie told us more.
4: I went to a Save the Children rally in London last year, and the organizers were, you know, they. Um, instantly got up and addressed us as star seeds and light workers, and you know had a group meditation session at the end and stuff like that. Which really, I have to say, you know, from kind of having seen QAnon afar from the US, was really not what I was expecting. And I do think that element exists in the US, but it seems to kind of have gained real dominance here um, in the UK. Um, yeah, I noticed a lot of people burning sage at the uh, anti-lockdown rally I went to on Saturday. It's one of those funny things where. I think kind of, you know, having studied the far right and anti-feminist groups that I really hadn't anticipated was just like how quickly those groups, those other groups of kind of new age spirituality uh, would be drawn into this kind of stuff. But it's sort of one of those things that once you look back, it kind of, it does make sense Do you know they already had these presences on social media. They had these networks almost ready to go, which had so many of the, the kind of variables that you would, you would need for someone to kind of become radicalized by this, you know, already had a kind of mistrust of kind of uh, medical and scientific institutions. Uh, quite a lot of them were really good at mobilizing social media um, for that way, because a lot of them already sell things like vitamins and essential oils and stuff like that. So they kind of had a lot of the core audience essentially ready to go for something like QAnon or anti-vax sentiment or all the rest of it.
5: So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts and sometimes that search can take you pretty far afield. So in the US the assumption tends to be that QAnon supporters are all Trump supporters. But QAnon is a lot weirder than that and it has a much wider reach. Researchers have found pro QAnon posts in 85 different countries around the world. And as Annie Kelly told us, Q takes on a different form in the UK, for example.
4: So you know, one thing I find really interesting is kind of the I suppose they kind of like user-generated element of Q, kind of how little it actually seems to do here with things like q drops and trump and maga and all the rest of it um, and how almost it's been kind of completely divorced and superseded by this kind of british q element which involves yeah i suppose these kind of street movements these kind of uh, parenting networks this kind of focus on secret pedophile elites and this kind of thing uh, often using kind of you know the language of actual British sex abuse scandals, so things like Jeffrey Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew, um, and Jimmy Savile and all of this kind of stuff, and how it's almost like untethered itself from like, you know, Q in America seems like so partisan. It's really hard to imagine QAnon in America without Trump. But here in the UK, it seems to have been like completely divorced from partisan politics. Do you know?
5: There's a really sad place on the internet, this group called QAnon Casualties on Reddit. And it's full of these heartbreaking stories of people's mothers, fathers, wives, husbands succumbing to Q. And that's the kind of language people use on these posts. So there are Q husbands who won't share beds with their vaccinated wives because they're worried about shedding. Sons and daughters who see their parents for the first time in ages because of the pandemic. And then they discover that they now have Q parents who spend their days on YouTube and worry obsessively that their unborn grandchildren will be abducted and tortured. There are countless stories of Q loved ones falling victims to various financial scams. So QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. It
1: can be tempting to laugh at it. Figures like the QAnon shaman who was involved in the invasion of the US Capitol building is a risible figure in many ways. But these are real people searching for real answers. We asked Florian Kramer why people are so ready to succumb to this fantasy.
8: I I think uh, the first uh, thing is to understand them. Um, and also to understand them not just on an analytical way, but actually to see what is, and that's also what I s- said together with uh, Wu Ming One. What is the kernel of truth here, and that that might be pa- painful. So, so what kind of problems do these movements actually point out? What kind of weaknesses in existing political cultural models?
5: Wu Ming One told us more about this kernel of truth and how it diverts energy away from real critique and questioning.
7: One of the, the main concepts in my work uh, is a diversionary narrative. Uh, I think that a conspiracy fantasy is always a diversionary narrative, which deviates energies for change, which deviates legitimate discontent, which uh, deviates anger, frustration. It, uh, a conspiracy fantasy hijacks those kind of feelings, those kind of emotion, those kind of uh, anger uh, towards the system. And squanders those energy by channeling into directions where they become useless because, of course, they directed toward false targets, uh, scapegoats uh, channeled into absurd explanations. Uh, false solutions to real problems. So it's a diversionary narrative. Uh, A conspiracy fantasy always starts uh, around a grain of truth, a kernel of truth. Uh, In Italian, they call it nucleo di verità, nucleus of, uh, of truth. Okay, that kernel is very important. You have to acknowledge it. You have to understand where it is, what it is about, in order to try to prevent hijacking of those energies.
5: So this brings us back to a problem we've discussed before, which is that fact-checking and debunking is useless. And actually, it's more than useless because it reinforces the narrative that it's trying to contest. Wu Ming-Wan explained to us how this process works.
7: And I think that Conspiracy is one of the ways the the capitalist systems achieves homeostasis, achieves stabilization, by uh, generating diversionary narratives all the time. The most common diversionary narratives are conspiracy fantasies. So when you debunk conspiracy fantasies, the way, you know, I call them neoliberal debunkers because I think that most of them are defenders of the system, actually, and they're defenders of the neoliberal consensus. What debunkers usually do is uh, simply demonstrating that that conspiracy fantasy is false in its premises without acknowledging its kernel of truth. So they don't convince anyone who believes in conspiracy fantasies. Uh, They are simply perceived as defenders of official truth, of the mainstream, of the state of things. Uh, So they don't achieve any result and um, they end up being uh, applauded by people who already share their opinion. Debunking the never destroyed any conspiracy fantasies. Debunking never convinced any conspiracy fantasist. So I tried to go beyond debunking.
4: The so theories to fantasies, can you wrap this up?
0: No, it's a conspiracy theory. It never gets wrapped up. It just goes on and on, making more and more connections until it engulfs everything. But QAnon
5: does tie together a lot of the themes of this podcast anyway, right? It's a new way of thinking about politics that can also be anti-political. It's a type of argument that takes advantage of how digital media allows us to connect anything to anything without worrying about its context or its origin. It's something that taps into our emotions, that orients us to a particular way of seeing and viewing the world, and it gives us an enemy. It's pretty powerful stuff.
0: So I often think, that the only kinds of academics entitled to talk about solutions are in the chemistry department. But I'll tell you what, next episode, we'll talk about solutions. On this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you have been listening to... I am Woming One. Matthew Feldman.
3: My name's Claire Birchall. My
0: name is Florian Carlo.
1: My name is Oogliel.
4: My name's Annie
0: Kelly.
5: You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka.
0: And me, Alan Finlayson, And me, Sophie Ludkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. Production of the podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council by the University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University of London. We beg
5: of you to smash that like button.